0: Welcome to the 22nd episode of Port Calls and Politics, and that song is Hellmarch from Command and Conquer Red Alert, the old PC game from Westwood Studios before Electronic Arts bought it up and ruined it. Because today we're talking about angry mobs, the dangers of conformity, black booted thought police, and Fascism. I am Mark Olson, a former naval officer and verbal pugilist, out to give you a dose of perspective needed in today's strange times. Please, right now, give me a like on iTunes or SoundCloud, and if you would be so kind, a review. Good, bad, ugly, any review will do. Please do it right now. I am broadcasting from my studio apartment in Washington, D.C. The sun is shining. And I'm in the dark jonesing to get up on my rooftop pool to show off my six-pack. Well, two-pack at the moment. But I'm putting the rigor in one day. One day I'll be there. Today's episode chronicles a classroom experiment that went off the rails to demonstrate just how quickly and easily Americans, full of McDonald's and freedom, can fall victim to the allure of fascist thought. If you fancy yourself independently-minded, don't rest on your laurels. Mob mentality is sneaky and taps into an innate desire to find belonging. Enjoy. These are interesting times. Dysfunctional politics reigns supreme. Regardless of one's political affiliations, we can all agree this country is deeply divided across political and cultural lines. What bothers me, though, is how quickly people lob the Nazi label or make awful comparisons to fascism, Hitler The whole works. Attacks like these greatly undermine what otherwise might be sound arguments. Come on, they're ridiculous. During the Bush years, we heard it all too often. It continued under Obama and became a mainstay, or has become a mainstay, in anti-Trump talking points. Can they define fascism? A solid rule in life and Facebook arguments is never call someone something you can't define. That's what morons do, and we're not those, we're smart. Typically, what people are really trying to do is equate fascism with totalitarianism or authoritarianism. I get it. Fascist really rolls off the tongue. Sounds better than, hey, you, you're a totalitarianist. Is that a word? It should be. See, that's clunky. Meanwhile, fascist just works as a verbal hand grenade. So let's play the definition game. Thank you, Websters. Before we press on, Totalitarianism is a form of government in which the state's power is unlimited and used to control virtually all aspects of public and private life. Control extends to all political, financial areas, and the attitudes, morals, and beliefs of the people. It combines control with ideology. An authoritarian system has a strong central government, but allows varying degrees of political and personal freedom. In these cases, rival political parties may exist. However, they're often a ruse to offer an illusion of freedom. In essence, the political process is controlled by government absent constitutional authority or accountability. Strict government controls on speech and social freedoms are common but not absolute. The difference is subtle between totalitarianism and, and authoritarianism. That's a lot of isms. But it's important. Fascism combines, wait for it, the most extreme and awful aspects of both. (laughs) Awesome. You have a dictator with unchecked power, government control over industry and commerce, suppression of the opposition, often with secret police clad in black, hiding around every corner. But the real biggie with fascism is the elevation of an us versus them mentality or cult of personality. It is groupthink oriented, state-oriented enemy-oriented. Usually this keeps everyone on constant war footing, fearing barbarians at the gate and lurking within this nationalistic society. Benito Mussolini drew on Italian history, primarily the Roman Empire and Renaissance, to play on his people's hopes and ambitions. History was a vehicle or catalyst to craft a new Italian breed of nationalism. Hitler used the idea of a Third Reich, the Holy Roman Empire and German Empire being the ones before them, to convince the masses to buy into the Nazi vision. Of course, other tactics were used, and that captures what this episode is really about. Now, if you're seeing similarities in what I just described to say, I don't know, our current president and his statements and actions, I can certainly understand. But it's important to remember America remains, remains a constitutional republic. Just as some might dislike the real or perceived erosion of freedom, we still get to vote every four years to throw the bums out, as they say. Fascism? Not so much. Oh, and rest assured, people on the right see a ton of fascism in the Antifa movement. Both sides have labeled fascism, you know, depending on their political preferences. And I find that ironic. An anti-fascist group that uses some fascist tactics. This is a crazy world. Opposition to free speech is a form of fascism, folks. The First Amendment, which I hold sacrosanct, protects even speech I would spend my entire life fighting. Without a doubt, fascist elements, albeit subtle, are all around us, including Washington, D.C. Still don't believe me? Well, maybe after this episode, you'll think a tad differently. Isn't that the point? Fascism draws on groupthink, solidarity, sense of community, pride, action. You're either with us or against us. With Trump tweets, anti-immigration sentiment, post-Parkland gun control marches, intersectional politics, hashtag MeToo, Black Lives Matter, alt-right trolling, the list goes on. Debate, actual debate, is non-existent. Nope. Nope. Dissenting views are a surefire way to get labeled a communist, racist, homophobe, statist, liberal, snowflake, etc. Take a step back and think carefully about the words people use on a daily basis. How things get reported. Arguments with close friends or that weirdo at a bar. Are we engaging in constructive dialogue about hot topics or acting out emotionally, divorced from logic and facts? This moves beyond the whole right-left spectrum. This has become far too commonplace. Are we thinking the best or worst in others? Are we jumping to conclusions? Are we listening? Or are we just waiting for the other person to finish so we can deliver the knockout blow to win the so-called debates we think we're having? Are we succumbing to fascist fiefdoms of groupthink and mob behavior? With that, let me tell you a story. I remember growing up and never understanding how Hitler and the Nazi party could amass such power and commit unspeakable atrocities. Sanity fell off the cliff. Germans are smart, industrious people. Hell, they make most of the best products. Engineering whizzes, those mention. How could they fall for that Nazi crap? The Holocaust. Yes, it happened, history illiterate types. Nor is the earth flat. How could Germans sit idly by? It makes no sense. A book I've mentioned called The Rights of Spring by Modrice Ecksteins helps explain the mood at the time and the conditions that led to Nazi rule. Still, for a long time, historians actually argued and generally agreed that the Nazi movement occurred because of a flaw, a cultural deep flaw in the German people. Those militaristic Germans are culturally depraved, or so they said. Now that's been soundly debunked. No, no, no. Social science experiments relating to groupthink and cognitive dissonance reveal all humans are susceptible to the dangers of irrationality, dangerous conformity under the right conditions. But that could never work in America with our clinging to our individual rights like guns and religion. Remember that? Love of Budweiser and NASCAR, freedom the 4th of July, barbecues and a history of constitutional governance, right? That can't happen. What if I told you we absolutely could be duped? Democracy is a heck of a lot more fragile than we think. Something we shouldn't take for granted because you can wake up one day and poof, it's gone. A group of students in Palo Alto, California learned the lesson firsthand in a 1967 classroom. Unwitting on guinea pigs in a now famous, notorious, fascinating, shocking, and revealing experiment. In the late 80s or early 90s, I saw a film called The Wave. Maybe y'all have seen it. It's based on a short story by Ron Jones. The film was featured in those ABC after-school specials. Ah, remember those? Vids about the cautions of teenage sex, smoking the herb, the horror, race relations, gender equality. Those were the days. Jodie Foster even got her start there. Where would we be without Jodie Foster? This was important stuff. When the film originally aired, it earned critical acclaim, winning an Emmy and a 1981 Peabody Award. At a mere 44 minutes, I highly recommend pulling it up on YouTube and giving it a gander. Of course, it is over-dramatized in a classic 1980s made-for-TV way, but that makes it even more brilliant. Just brilliant. And it stars Bruce Davidson as teacher Ben Ross. You might remember him from such films as X-Men and X-Men Dose. He was Senator Kelly who Magneto turned into a fish-like mutant with Gills who died an amazing, disturbing, puddly death in front of Storm who was played by Holly Berry. Hubba hubba. The ABC special was not the work of fiction though, but based on an actual experiment. In the days before standardized testing and No Child Left Behind, teachers had flexibility to teach unencumbered, to some extent, by the shackles of big government metrics nonsense. In my middle school days, we had a Civil War unit where we dressed like Confederate and Union soldiers and reenacted the Battle of Fredericksburg. Marched around the square, fun times. There is no way in hell you can do that today. Not sure what I learned, but uh, it sure was fun, Paul. Pa and now comes off as kind of racist today. The third wave experiment was the brainchild of a first-year high school history teacher, Ron Jones, at Coverley High School in April 1967. Now famous in sociology circles, it also formed the basis for a 2008 German film called Die Welle. After graduating from Stanford, Mr. Jones was full of piss and vinegar, optimistic he could change youth's lives for the better, if he only knew the impact he was about to have. One day in class, he was having trouble answering how the German population could accept the actions of the Nazi regime. How could the average Joes not know what was going on? So he decided to create a social experiment, a movement called the Third Wave. What began innocently, quickly, went out of control. Even Mr. Jones was swept away in it all. To this very day, the third wave follows him everywhere. Something so disturbing he cannot forget, cannot escape. The so-called survivors of this experiment were equally affected. For years, the hundreds of members would bear a strange secret, a shared silence of the time they turned into Nazis. As Jones recounts, we were studying Germany and during the lecture, a student interrupted with a question. How could the German populace claim ignorance for the slaughter of the Jewish people? How could the townspeople, railroad conductors, teachers, doctors, claim they knew nothing of the concentration camps and human carnage? How can people who were neighbors and maybe even friends of the Jewish citizen say they weren't there when it happened? Jones didn't know how to answer. He made a fateful decision to dedicate a week to find out. On a Monday, he introduced his sophomore students to one of the hallmarks of Nazi indoctrination, discipline. Drawing parallels with sport and the arts, he emphasized that discipline is key to success in those endeavors. His lesson made discipline relatable to them. A football player cannot reach the heights of success without disciplining himself towards a pursuit. Ballet dancers require hours of practice, years of discipline. Then he ordered the students to experience discipline by having them get in the proper seated posture. Feet flat, hands placed flat across the back to force straight alignment of the spine. Head forward, chin down. Strength through discipline, he repeated over and over. Then they practiced getting into the proper seated position. Rest, repeat, rest, repeat, over and over, faster and faster, crisper, faster. Meanwhile, he performed spot corrections like a drill instructor. And the students got into it. Wrong. Correct this. Great, Joey. That is perfect. See how great Joey's posture is? He's the model. Competing with each other. Not thinking, just acting. Just conforming. He moved on to other things, such as going from walking around to seated. Timing the performance. Unity, cohesion, order, timeliness, and precision emphasize strength through discipline. In noise drills, talking was allowed only to be shown as an unnecessary distraction. What was once an obnoxious sophomore classroom was a well-oiled, disciplined machine, silent, focused. Jones was alarmed how quickly everyone fell in line with a uniform code of behavior. How far could this go, he wondered. How far can I push? Was this merely a game to them, or did they truly honestly sink, yearn for discipline and uniformity? He wanted to find out. To push the tolerance of the class for regimented action, for the final 25 minutes of class, he introduced the first of a series of rules. All students must be sitting in class in proper position before the bell. They must carry pencils and papers for note-taking, and when answering or asking questions, they must stand and start with Mr. Jones. He swiftly corrected transgressions and required them to repeat it properly. That's wrong. Nope. Nope. Mike, please show Dorothy how to properly answer a question. All answers and questions had to be concise and to the point. You fumbled your response. Do it again, clearer, without delay. Remember, strength through discipline. I've said this before, strength through discipline. That's vital. Say it with me. Again, during this time, class participation went from a few to many, and the answers, questions became more accurate and concise. Those shy soon started participating, drawing on the new support network. In one day, he'd reshaped the classroom. Everyone was equal and offered the chance to answer and ask questions as long as you followed the rules. As the first day ended, Jones had nothing but questions. Why hadn't he tried this before? How is it that this method resulted in more accurate recitation of facts and concepts, they even seemed to be asking better and more nuanced questions and treating each other with greater empathy, all in one day. It, it was so productive. Even Jones started to reconsider his basic beliefs towards an open classroom, self-directed learning. Strength through discipline seemed to make sense. Even the slow kids showed a spark of eagerness. On Tuesday, he arrived in the classroom, and to his shock, every student was sitting in silence, properly seated for attention. Necks, tight, spine straight, all focused forward. A few even donned smiles, but most were laser-focused. Right then, he considered halting the experiment, but he resisted. Heading to the blackboard to write beneath the words, strength through discipline, strength through community. Jones' second law. Silent they were as he discussed the importance of community. Being part of a team, how teams divided cannot win. Musicians not on the same note cannot play a masterpiece. Harmony requires community. Success needs community. Strength through community. Community bonds neighbors working and struggling together. We can build one another up together. Like raising a barn, building a skyscraper, a cause, something greater than oneself. A community is more powerful than anything in the world. Strength is possible. No, strength is certain through discipline, through community. Say it with me. He couldn't stop now. He wanted to dig deeper. Why did they readily accept his martial lectures? Were they still play acting or was something darker at play? He instructed the class to repeat the two laws over and over, starting with a few, then choosing others. Those not chosen had the look of dismay, wanting to be part of it. The sense of power through belonging was contagious. Soon they were all chanting the rules, strength through discipline, strength through community. From a whisper, soft, slow, to a boom, the classroom roared with unity, cohesion, the harmony of a disciplined community. By this time, he was as much a follower as they were, No longer directing, they were eating it up. He created a class statute for members only. A simple salute by class members for class members. Right hand up towards the right shoulder in a curled position. The third wave salute for class members only. The third wave name came from beach lore. The idea being that waves travel in chains. The third wave being the last and largest in the series. The most enduring and powerful one. He mandated to salute all class members and only class members outside the classroom. When the bell sounded, he demanded complete silence. When he raised his right arm in salute, they responded without word, prodding, delay, or question. Over the next few days, the salute was used outside of class for members by members. 30 or so students waving a Nazi-esque hand salute without the foggiest notion why. Strength through discipline, strength through community, a buzz was spreading. Students from other classes wanted in. What was this third wave all about? They had to know. On Wednesday, Jones issued membership cards to every student who wanted to continue with the experiment. Not one, not a single student protested. Strength through discipline, strength through community. There were now 43 students in the class. 13 had cut class to join the movement, the community, the expanding movement. He explained how discipline and community were meaningless without action. The membership cards, these cards were special. Three of the cards were marked by a red X. Those three were special. They'd be tasked to report any students failing to obey the class rules. The lucky three smiled. They were not only part of a select group, but furthermore entrusted by their leader for this critical assignment. No one questioned the logic. Strength through discipline. Strength through community. Strength through action. He discussed the symbiotic relationship between community and preservation. Bonds so tight that you'd stop at nothing to preserve them. Hard work for each other, with each other, towards a common goal accelerates learning and accomplishment. Instead of competition, leading to pain, disenfranchisement, and suffering, they, they, this was different. They were united to help one another exceed, together. A student stood up, proper action before making a statement or asking a question, of course. Mr. Jones, proper way to phrase a question, for the first time in my life, I'm learning things. Another, Mr. Jones, why don't you teach like this all the time? He was shocked. But deep down, a sense of pride swelled, a perverse feeling of triumph. They were organized, effective, enthralled. He was their puppet master. Strength through discipline, strength through community, strength through action. What compounded him further was that his methods, Nazi fascist methods, demonstrated an immediate increase in performance. Everyone went above and beyond in their homework assignments. Just three days and a noticeable, obvious uptick even amongst slower students. They almost pleaded for more homework. To demonstrate action, he gave each student a specific verbal assignment. Design a third wave banner. Halt any student who is not a member from entering the classroom. Recite the names and address of every member. Train 20 in in a nearby elementary school on proper seating posture. Convince them that this posture is most conducive to learning. Read this pamphlet. Report on it. Recruit a a reliable friend. Community without action is pointless. Strength through discipline, strength through community, strength through action. His final edict elicited applause. After laying out strict procedures for initiating new members, knowledge of rules, pledge of adherence, he stated that new members would get a membership card only from him and only after they demonstrate their conviction. They were a frenzy. The school flowed with curiosity, What the heck is this movement I want to join? The school chef asked what a third wave cookie should look like. The principal gave Jones a salute. News was spreading and membership swelled to 200 people. Jones started to get scared. Had he taken it too far or not far enough to drive the point home? Could he end it now? His fears were realized when members started telling on each other. Despite only appointing three monitors, others took it upon themselves to report infractions. So-and-so didn't salute, and another criticized the third wave. They felt duty-bound to stand for their cherished rules, not ever asking what what the point was. The experiment was making Jones feel isolated and depressed. A few students told their parents about the experiment. They were three women who were by far the most intelligent in the class. Accustomed to being special based on their mental acumen, they participated, but mechanically, going through the motions, bearing witness to others eagerly falling in love with the movement. A rabbi, father of one student, called him, expressing his concerns. After Jones explained how he was examining the German psyche during the Nazi experience, he warmed up to the idea and promised to speak with other parents to calm their fears. In the back of his mind, Jones recounted examples throughout history of clergy, religious institutions acquiescing, or looking past potential troubles until it was too late. If only the rabbi pressed and offered righteous rebellion, he reasoned the experiment could end. He could show them the virtues of standing against the rushing tide, the wave of fascist thought. Instead, the rabbi buckled. Remaining ignorant to the experiment's inherent oppression. Becoming an accomplice, and outspoken advocate. Jones was worn out. Even after a few days the experiment was taking a toll. It became hard separating real life with dictatorial life. He took the drama home with him. He heard rumors of bullying those not taking the experiment seriously. They knew it was an experiment. Yet they didn't realize how deep they'd been sucked in. But Robert really disturbed him. He was a big kid, not bright, a loner who always ate by himself. He was invisible, not an achiever or troublemaker, just there. With the third wave, Robert found a home, a sense of purpose and belonging. It was immediately recognizable. He found a quality. Late that Wednesday, Robert shadowed Jones. What are you doing, Robert? Mr. Jones, I'm your bodyguard. I'm afraid something will happen to you. He begged Jones to let him assume this all-important responsibility. So Robert followed him all day around saluting members, protecting their Fuhrer, opening and closing doors. Wherever Jones went, Robert was on his right. Within the restricted faculty room, he stood at attention while Jones sucked down coffee. Anyone questioning him got a simple reply. I'm not a student. I'm a bodyguard strength through discipline, strength through community, strength through action. By Thursday, Jones knew he needed to hatch an escape. He was troubled. The movement became the center of gravity at the school. It's all people discussed. Fights broke out in defense of the third wave. Jones eased into the dictator role so much his actions and words were all instincts now. Base ones to dominate, control, sharpen. He was losing sight of the purpose and couldn't or wouldn't take time to consider the consequences. He was becoming a victim of circumstances, events around him, a victim of his own creation. But how to end it? He knew he couldn't let it run its course, but also couldn't abruptly end it. Then there there had to be a catharsis. It would be cruel to simply leave them hanging, leave 200 or so kids in a state of confusion for the rest of the year. They'd probably keep it going with or without him. It couldn't just be a game, but a lesson, a clear, meaningful message. No, it had to have a climax. The experiment already had gone too far. Wednesday evening, there was a break-in, and the, and the classroom was ransacked. Jones later learned it was the father of a student, an Air Force colonel who had been a POW in a German war camp. The guy lost it. Hearing about the experiment brought back a flood of painful memories. Jones saw him in the morning seated against the classroom door in torment. He was confused and lost, explaining how many friends died at the hands of the Nazis. Shaken, Jones helped him get home. Dealing with the colonel was tough, but his focus shifted back to school. The third wave was disrupting learning. Kids were cutting class to join his lectures, and school counselors were getting involved, asking students about the experiment. Every student was questioned, but they refused to divulge information. They bought in strength through discipline, strength through community, strength through action. Jones crafted his plan. Thursday, 80 people piled into the class, quiet, well-postured, attentive. He talked about pride. More than banners and salutes, pride is knowing you're the best. That knowledge cannot be destroyed, silenced. It stays with you. He rolled out the idea he developed to teach the ultimate lesson. He started in a slow, low tone. The third wave isn't just an experiment or classroom activity. It's far more important than that. The third wave is a nationwide program to find students who are willing to fight for political change in this country. That's right. This activity we've been doing has been practiced for the real thing. Across the country, teachers like myself have been recruiting and training a youth brigade capable of showing a nation a better society through discipline, community, pride, and action. If we can change the way that school is run, we can change the way that factories, stores, universities, and all other institutions are run. You are a selected group of young people chosen to help this cause. If you will stand up and display what you have learned in the past four days... We can change the destiny of this nation. We can bring it a new sense of order, community, pride, and action, a new purpose. Everything rests with you and your willingness to take a stand. Will you? He then turned to the three women who questioned the third wave and demanded they depart the room. Four guards he assigned swiftly saw them out. They didn't flinch at the edict. He told an enthusiastic crowd a special noon rally would be held that day. The national candidate for president would reveal himself and announce the formation of a third-wave youth program. This announcement would be delivered to 1,000 youth groups all over the country, standing together for change. Strength through discipline, strength through community, strength through action. Not a sound, just simmering anticipation cheers glee only members were allowed quickly students decided without jones prodding to wear blue and bring banners the network of third wavers sprung to action before the eyes of a petrified teacher turned dictator jones spent friday morning deep in thought broken by preparations for the noon rally streamers filled the auditorium bold blue banners propagandized the third wave It was starting to look like the 1934 images from the Triumph of the Will. Well, except for the book burning. At around 11 a.m., 30 students rushed in to get the best seats. More followed. Then more. Row after row filled with third waivers caught up in the moment. Clad in blue. Some even wore armbands emblazoned with the Wave logo. Banners everywhere. A hush swept through the packed arena. At 12... On the dot, Jones closed the doors and instructed guards to ensure no one entered. Remember, this is a frickin high school, a high school, and this happened. To make it even more bizarre, photographers dashed and darted along with reporters, Fashionists the indoctrination of our youth. Oh boy, what a scoop! No, no, no empty seats could be found. It was completely packed. The other interesting st- thing was that students were a spectrum of sensibilities jocks, nerds, outcasts, drama kids, you name it. On the stage was a television set. In a few minutes, their national leader would usher in a new era. But before that, Jones wanted to demonstrate to reporters just how united they were. A single salute yielded a terrifying roar. Strength through discipline, over and over. Again, strength through discipline, each time crisper, louder, Those guttural cries rocked the auditorium. At 12.05, Jones killed the lights and quickened to the TV. As it sparked to life, the old white and black scramble vision took over. A dead channel. They waited for the telecast. After a few minutes of staring into the fuzzy TV, whispers started. Still nothing. Then someone yelled, There isn't any leader, is there? A collective gasp shook the walls. Jones slowly, methodically approached the television set and snapped it off. He'd prepared for this, but started questioning himself. Then he started his well-rehearsed final lesson for the third waivers. Listen closely. I I have something important to tell you. Sit down, sit down. There is no leader. There is no such thing as a national youth movement called the third wave. You have been used, manipulated shoved by your own desires into the place you now find yourself. You are no better or worse than the German Nazis we have been studying. You thought you were the elect. That you were better than those outside the room. You bargained your freedom for the comfort of discipline and superiority. You chose to accept that the group's will and the big lie over your own conviction. Oh, you think to yourself that this was just going along for the fun. That you could... Extricate yourself at any moment. But where were you heading? How far would you have gone? Let me show you your future. With that, he switched on the rear screen projector. It quickly illuminated a white drop cloth hanging behind the television. Large numbers appeared in a countdown. The roar of the Nuremberg rally blasted into vision. Joan's heart was pounding. In ghostly images, the history of the Third Reich paraded in the room. The discipline. The march of super race. The big lie. Arrogance, violence, terror. People being pushed into vans. The visual stench of death camps. Faces without eyes. The trials. The plea of ignorance. I was only doing my job. My job. As abruptly as it started, the film froze in a halt on a single written frame. Everyone must accept the blame. No one can claim they didn't in some way take part. The room stayed dark as the final footage of the film flapped against the projector. He felt sick to his stomach. The room sweat and smelt like a locker room. No one moved. It was as if everyone wanted to dissect the moment, figure out what happened. Like awakening from a dream and deep sleep, the entire room of people took one last look back at their consciousness. He waited for several minutes to let everyone catch up. Finally, questions began to emerge. All the questions probed at imaginary situations and sought to discover the meaning of this event. In the still-darkened room Jones explained, he confessed a feeling of sickness and remorse, telling the assembly that a full explanation would take quite a while. But he began, Through the experience of the past, we have all tasted what it was like to live and act in Nazi Germany. We learned what it felt like to create a disciplined social movement, to build a special society, pledge allegiance to that society, replace reason with rules. Yes, we would all have made good Germans. We would have put on the uniform, turned our head as friends and neighbors were cursed and then persecuted, pulled the locks shut, worked in the defense plans, burned ideas. Yes, we know in a small way what it feels like to find a hero, to grab a quick solution, feel strong and in control of destiny. We know the fear of being left out, the pleasure of doing something right and being rewarded, to be number one, to be right. Taken to an extreme, we have seen and perhaps felt that these actions will lead to, we have witnessed something over the past week. We have seen that fascism is not just something those other people did. No, 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 it's right here in this room in our own personal habits and way of life. Scratch the surface and it appears. Something in all of us. We carry it like a disease. The belief that human beings are basically evil and therefore unable to act well towards one another. A belief that demands a strong leader and discipline to preserve social order. And there is something else. The act of apology. This is the final lesson to be experienced. The last lesson is perhaps the one of greatest importance. This lesson was the question that started our plunge into studying Nazi life. Do you remember the question? It concerned the bewilderment at the German populace claiming ignorance and non-involvement in the Nazi movement. If I remember the question, it went something like this. How could the German soldier, teacher, railroad conductor, nurse, tax collector, and average citizen claimed at the end of the Third Reich that they didn't know nothing about anything going on? How can the people be part of something and then claim at the demise that they were not really involved? What causes people to blank out their own history? In the next few minutes and perhaps years, you will have the opportunity to answer this question. If our enactment of fascist mentality is complete, not one of you will ever admit to being at this final third wave rally. Like the Germans, you have trouble admitting to yourself that you came this far. You will not allow your friends and parents to know that you were willing to give up individual freedom and power for the dictates of order and unseen leaders. You can't admit to being manipulated, being a follower, to accepting the third wave as a way of life. You won't admit to participating in this madness. You will keep this day and this rally a secret. It's a secret I share with you. He took the film from the three cameras in the room and pulled the celluloid into the exposing light. The deed was concluded. The trial was over. The third wave had ended. He glanced over his shoulder and saw Robert, his self-appointed bodyguard. He was crying. Students slowly rose from their chairs and without words, filed into the outdoor light. He walked over to Robert and threw his arms over him. Robert was sobbing taking the large, uncontrollable gulps of air. It's, it's over. It's okay. According to Jones, in consoling each other, we became a rock in a stream of exist, exiting students. Some swirled back to momentarily hold Robert and me. Others cried openly and then brushed away tears to carry on. Human beings, circling and holding each other, moving towards the door and the world outside. For a week... In the middle of a random high school, students and a teacher got a glimpse of what it was like to shed self for complete solidarity, absent reason. They all carried this burden for the rest of their lives. Subsequent interviews with members drive this point home. This affected them greatly, and it may be surprising because it was only a week, but in a way, the third wave became a secret they did all share, a deep secret of the time they bore witness to the potential cruelty innate in human beings. Though they wanted to forget, they couldn't. What started with a question many have asked resulted in one of the most infamous social experiments in American history. So why do I share this? What's the point? Well, far too often, today's debates consist of shouting matches, poor grammar in all caps. We see the worst in one another. That's bad. But far worse is this. We've stopped thinking, applying rational thought, investigating empirical truth, filled to the brim with opinion without expertise. We've developed clear rules. You must think this, do this lest you be earn the label of a racist, sexist, liberal fundamentalist, whatever is we come up ne- with next. Complex issues simplified into for or against. Can it be simultaneously true that a free-thinking individual values equal rights, yet opposes, for instance, the methods of Black Lives Matter? Maybe they want to stand for the national anthem, or they just want to watch football after a shitty week at a shitty job with his shitty family because the Browns might one day win it all, and that's all he has in his shitty life. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he opposes certain statements made by one or two of the most extreme representatives. Conversely, are people that are opposed to the Black Lives Matter movement living with blinders on, not willing to look at real issues that are affecting the African-American community? Can people want a secure border, (coughs) a wall, because they personally experience the effects of unregulated illegal immigration? Perhaps they just believe in the rule of law and see fairness so often lauded on the other side being tossed aside. Is it possible that racism is the exception in most cases, not the rule? I don't know. Can a bargain be struck? Well, not without you and I. Can someone legitimately seek certain gun control reforms while still seeking not to infringe on one another's Second Amendment rights by going a step they believe is too far? Is it a zero or one situation? Most Americans believe there is a middle ground. What are we doing? Should proponents of Second Amendment be lumped in and categorized as people who don't care about the death of school children? Is it proper for a Parkland student to tell a sitting U.S. senator that when he sees him, he feels like he's looking down the barrel of a gun? Despite Marco Rubio's shortcomings as a politician, he didn't kill those kids. Divisive. Salvos earn retweets and likes. Controversy creates cash. Can the NRA be simply flawed or hold values different from you? Or must they be evil incarnate? All this bullshit looks past serious failures of parenting, law enforcement, mental health care, a scattershot approach to gun legislation, and the failure of a human being turned monster. He is the killer. We rush to judgment without considering the first report may be incomplete. Left and right, it is persistent always. No, we have to have an opinion. We must pick a side in this ongoing culture war ruining this once great country. Each sexual assault accusation is a death sentence before the facts are in. Or you have people who are predisposed to just support anyone who's accused because they just want to troll the hashtag MeToo movement. Though the number of the guilty far exceeds the innocent, innocent people have faced severe injustice at the hands of movements bent on erasing past wrongs by writing the system with a judge-first mentality. Then, passionate voices tell us to keep going. Grab the pitchforks before the system knocks women or some other disenfranchised group back down. Is it possible, just possible, that mob mentality is affecting each of us more than we care to admit? I mean, how else can we explain this vast divide? We've locked ourselves in vaults made of code words and circular logic. To enter, gain acceptance, one must pass tests based not on sound ideas, but an appropriate level of scorn or rage. When the opposition is casually vilified, it makes it particularly easy to justify a whole range of cruelty. White privilege, by definition, a clearly racist ideological viewpoint, as it generalizes based on race, grants adherents the right to say and do anything in the name of social justice. So then you have white people saying that they're now the victimized, right? Stop with the victimization. Move on to other things. Everyone is now a victim of something in the freest, richest, greatest country in the history of mankind. Meanwhile, you have people in Mali that are getting hacked to death. Where is the perspective? And then the real baddies, alt-right Nazi sympathizers, eat up the chaos, swell their ranks. Instead of winning arguments with words, facts, and most important, compassion, understanding, we further isolate each other. We fall into our own cozy fascist fiefdoms in cyberspace. Sure, we say we use multiple sources for news, But are we really consuming alternative voices with an open mind? Or picking holes in the other side's narrative? No, no. We've already chosen before the website spools up. That, my friends, that vitriol we spew at our neighbors, so judgmental and quick to condemn, is about as fascist as you get. Instead of immediately deeming someone's words offensive because they triggered you or they stand in opposition to deep-felt beliefs, Why not calmly get over yourself, find a backbone, but most important, find out what they really meant. Maybe they are just a jerk. Fine. The world's full of them. Move on. But more often, talking and listening helps gain understanding and appreciation for the reasons people hold certain beliefs. Nazis excluded, though. They're the worst. Can't talk to them. Real Nazis. Not some rando who voted for Trump. Yet, despite... What the news says, Nazis are a tiny, tiny fraction of the hatred running rampant. And you can, if you don't believe me, you can con- consult the Southern Poverty Law Center for proof. They're good scapegoats, but the angry mobs, that's all us. The extremists, they just reap the rewards. Years ago, a smart man told me that presidents are a reflection of society at the time. Roosevelt's resolve. Kennedy's daring, Reagan's unbridled patriotism, Clinton's optimism, Bush's fear, and today, Trump's egocentrism and embellishment. In an era of fake news sensationalism and personality politics, left and right, someone's paying the bill. We are. And the bill, it's destroying us. No, Trump is just a reflection, mere looking back at you and me. Perhaps it's time to trade in our digital relationships with human ones. Unplug, have a beer, and get to know those we seem to loathe so much. Who knows? Maybe we can learn a thing or two. Either way, it's more mature than hiding behind our PC monitor, iPhone, and Echo chamber. At least that's my opinion. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to the 22nd episode of Poor Calls Apologies. I really, really hope you enjoy it. And if you have problems with something I said, or want clarification, give me a shout out, let me know. And as always, please like, subscribe, share, and give me a review. A review would be fantastic. I'm going to leave y'all with a reminder. Take the road less traveled. And here is a song that I think perfectly sums up what this episode was all about. By Pink Floyd, another brick in the wall. We don't need no charge control